Greetings and welcome to episode number two of Earth Repair Radio. Agriculture is 80% of the planet's water consumption. And we're creating an agriculture that increases water resources. Where you could convert the whole, the whole Arabian Peninsula into a productive landscape. It's because it is so harsh um, that the opportunity is so big. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison. And today we've got a really awesome show for you. We've got Neil Spackman as our guest. Neil has been working on the Albeda project in Saudi Arabia for the last six years. It's one of the harshest climates on the planet. He's been doing a whole permaculture reforestation project there and has just acquired some really amazing wisdom and experience by being on the ground and regenerating landscapes in this climate. In fact, Neil has actually cracked the code on how to create more rainfall in the desert. And this is one of the things he's going to share with us today. So listen up and here's Neil Spackman. Hey, Neil, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, Andrew. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. I just want to say I'm really honored to have you. I've I've been following your work uh, for a while, and it's been some of the most impressive work and on the planet, really. And I've I've shared it with a lot of different students, and so I'm just really happy to actually have a chance to sit here and talk to you and get a little bit deeper into it. So thanks so much. You bet. Yeah. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you accomplished in your time thus far working in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on the Albeda project. So, uh, we're in our sixth year now, and we started off with an idea that if we uh, could manage the flash floods well enough and start healing the hydrological cycle, that we could terraform uh, large swaths of land and create a new agricultural economy that would both you know increase the productivity of the land but also improve local water resources and create economies for the people who were living in these rural areas and we've been working on a prototype a proof of concept site that's a hundred acres or so uh, and it's it's a self-contained watershed so we have a series of mountains we have two small watersheds that flood and run off onto a stretch of floodplain and that's our site and six months ago, this, this, is, this is the biggest step we've taken in a long time. Six months ago, we cut all the irrigation to our site. We had about 4,000 trees established of uh, maybe 10 different species that we have trialed. And we were like, okay, it's, it, we've had some years to establish. It's time to uh, push the bird out of the nest and see if it flies. And so our tree, it, ha- it didn't rain this year, so our trees have now gone six months without water after being drip irrigated on a weekly basis for between two and five years. Do you, do you want to talk just for a second about what the climate is like, just to provide a little bit of context? <clears throat> sure. So we, um, we're just within the subtropics <coughs> in a very, very dry 
region. We're actually just south of Mecca, um, about 40 kilometers south of Mecca. Our climate, we never get below 10 degrees Celsius, and we get up to 50 Celsius. That's the hottest it's gotten, which is in the mid-120s. And then uh, we average just around two inches of rain a year. And so it, uh, in terms of climate, it's a really extreme place. And that's, I just wanted to say that's two inches of rain a year. Yeah. And that's, that's your average, right? We went, we went 37 months with no precipitation between 2011 and 2014. Wow. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to create an ecology that can survive that kind of shock. And so it's got to be very resilient. It's got, and it's got to be very hardy. So, but six months with no water, no rain, no drip. And, um, 80% of the stuff that we have done is doing really well. Nice. Uh, we have a couple species that grow fine on drip. They can handle the heat. They can handle the salt. But uh, they're not doing well at this point. And so that it's really good feedback for us when, when we want to go large scale. But just the fact that it is living and that everything hasn't died <laughs> is it's it's an accomplishment. It is because um, because stuff is living now, and because uh, this was a desolate site six years ago, and now we have oh dozens more birds' nests, so many more lizards, so much more insect life. Uh, five species of mushrooms now that we've wow. observed, whereas before it was just one that would only show. I mean, they they still you only see the mushrooms when it floods, but we've before there was only one type, and now there are new types coming up that that our Bedouin don't recognize, hmm. and uh, so that's exciting because we've got a good mycorrhizal layer developing, and that's going to help the health of the trees a lot. Uh, and the other, I think the other big part of that for me is that we have, <clears throat> we have really been abusive, uh, with these trees. We, we have not, we mulched the first two times we planted, but the mulch blew away. Hmm. So I was like, no, we're not going to, so we, we haven't mulched, we haven't added fertilizer, we haven't done uh, any kind of compost tea, we haven't inoculated them, uh, which goes contrary to, you know, the conventional wisdom of how you should be growing this stuff. But we wanted to see what could make it. Yeah. Right? And now that we've got this system that's developing and that is successful, we're, we are going to start moving from, a, from an experimental phase to a production phase where I am going to start doing a lot of things to make these trees more healthy it's still going to be low input stuff, but we're we're going to move from experimentation to production hmm. and uh, to making money on the site. And that's an exciting transition. It's really exciting for me to look at that and say, okay, we've done this. It's living. It's going to survive. Um, and, and that's that's big for us. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. Now, what was the what was the original intention? 
of the project's funders and you know, <clears throat> what's the big picture of what you're really trying to accomplish there? So the, the area we live in is populated by two tribes of settled nomads of Bedouin. <coughs> and they are, uh, they're pretty poor off. They got their first paved road in 2009 and they, and they got electricity a year later. So Seven years ago, these folks didn't have electricity. Wow. And they, um, so our funders wanted to do a green village. That's how this was initially characterized to me, where we would uh, help these people build homes and help them develop an economy so that they could keep making a living on their land. There's also a heritage preservation aspect to it. Uh, there's an education aspect to it. There's an infrastructure aspect to it. Uh, and all of those things are moving uh, independently of each other and sometimes congruently with each other. But my role was to figure out how we could bring the land back. Uh, and then to teach a team of locals how to build this system and how to manage it um, so that they would have the ability and the knowledge to do this on their own, on the land that they live on, so so that they can make a living, so that they can uh, raise their families on land that's traditionally theirs. Right. So, so um, Bedouin are traditionally pastoral nomads and absolutely and then why do they need to be settled at this point what's what's the story behind that they were already settled uh the saudi government really incentivized uh the bedou to settle and so they had uh there were handouts to encourage that kind of development uh starting i believe 30 years ago and so at this point We've, we've got a population of about 5,500 in Albeda. Maybe 100, 200 of those folks are still living in goat hair tents and moving uh, regularly. But by and large, that nomadism has ceased and had ceased by the time I got there. Hmm. Um, when I showed up in 2010, most people were living in cinder block homes. Um, and they, they're still very much pastoral, right? Almost everybody has camels and sheep and goats. But there are land management issues that have uh, desertified their land and mm. degraded their land such that they need an income to be able to feed their animals rather than their animals providing an income. Mm. Is that a condition that we find in a lot <clears throat> of places? You know, I think traditional livelihoods are collapsing all over the planet, mm. uh, whether because of globalization or urbanization um, or just the centralization of land use and land management into uh, national governments or, or the state. I don't, uh, I don't know that much about the rest of the world specifically with regards to pastoralists. I know in East Africa it's a big issue because uh, there are big agribusinesses that want to take pastoral land and convert it into uh, global commodities and there are conflicts there. But uh, it, it, rural poverty is definitely a global issue. Yeah. yeah. 
So your your funders wanted to uh, create a livelihood for people who were transitioning from pastoralists and basically settling on lands that were ancestrally theirs. And what kind of vision did they have uh, as far as restoring watersheds, restoring the hydrology, creating a local food system? How much of this was, was dictated as the scope of your work, or how much of this did you actually bring to the table? Um, I brought a lot of it to the table, to be honest. I mean, we we were when I first came on, we were still very much collecting information about what the ground situation was. And so the it wasn't so much a focus on that as much as that they said they wanted it to be sustainable. Um, and they wanted uh, they wanted the people to not be poor anymore, right? So uh, it was more about building homes and providing jobs. However, those jobs are going to be provided, uh, but then make it sustainable somehow. And those those were our initial parameters. And then after we had a good concept of what their situation was, what had caused the desertification where they were living, um, it, it became much more clear what we could do after we had been there for some time and observed the place and talked with the people. <clears throat> because, I mean, if, if, if it had made more sense to do a, a stone quarry or to do or to build a factory there, I think we would have done that. I, mm. Right? It was it was more about getting the people into a good situation than having this environmental restoration aspect to it. But given the natural resources that are there, and given the culture of the people, it became clear very quickly that this was not just it was a possibility. We didn't know that it could be done, but we thought it was a possibility. Um, and, and, uh, and that it was worth trying. So it seems like as you learned more, it became a lot about water. Yeah. And you, and you've mentioned terraforming, you've mentioned the, uh, you know, 4,000 trees you've planted there. Would you paint us a little bit of a picture of what water flow was like prior to your project (coughs) and how your project now is, um, you know, reversing the desertification, degradation of this landscape through your water management. Sure. The, um, all deserts flood. That's characteristic of deserts all over the place, is that when it rains, um, if there's any kind of silt uh, in that ground, that silt will form a, a layer on top of the ground that becomes impermeable once it has absorbed a certain amount of water. And then that water will just run off through the watershed. And so you've got a very, very high um, runoff quotient or a runoff ratio such that the the water you do get when it does rain, uh, where we are, it runs into the Red Sea um, in very high percentages. Or it ends up sitting on top of the ground and it'll evaporate. Uh, because of high temperatures and, and high winds. So the the first step was to uh, slow that water down in the mountains, to work up in the mountains and slow that water down and get it into the ground as quickly as possible 
such that when the water hit the floodplain, it wasn't it wasn't this massive flood um, as much as a uh, I don't want to say trickle because it's more than a trickle, but it's less than a flood. Um, so that when it hits our floodplain, we can divert it and get it into the ground um, in places where our trees are growing. And so managing that water is crucial because uh, aquifer uh, mining, I'm going to say mining, aquifer mining is a big deal right now. You look at um, places like Saudi Arabia where they've consumed 80% of the country's fossil water in the last 40 years. Do you want to define, uh, not everybody's going to know what fossil water is. Maybe just give us Yeah, so fossil water is deep, deep, deep water. You're talking 600 meters and farther down. And these, and most places have fossil water, but by and large they're being tapped and they don't refill. Yeah. Okay, so it, it's a one-time use kind of resource and saudi arabia in the last 40 years has consumed the equivalent of lake erie wow um and and that's gone now that resource is gone wow yeah when, when uh, i lived a lot in of places. when i lived in uh i lived in prescott arizona for a long time and most of our water had fallen during the pleistocene era and yeah. was being mined from this fossil water aquifer um, under an adjacent valley so yeah yeah and once it's gone you're like okay well time to move on because <laughs> and then and even with shallow aquifers um we we tend to look at groundwater as a resource groundwater isn't a resource groundwater is just a storage facility and so you've got to look at your your income versus your your expenditures uh, the Ogallala, which is underneath eight of the states in the U.S. and provides the water for like 20% of the country's agriculture, hmm. is being drained way more quickly than that water goes back in. And so you have communities in northern Oklahoma, um, in Kansas, in uh, the panhandle of Texas. I think it's a panhandle. Where... They're running out of water, and they're drilling deeper every year so that they can get to it, but they know it's going to run out. And so for us, we had to look at rainfall. Rainfall is the only sustainable source of water we've got. And then we look at the ground kind of like a bank account where we've got a certain amount coming in every year or every two years, and we want to use less than that. If we use less, and, and that's just water budgeting, if we use less than what's coming in, then then we can run that land that way indefinitely. Yeah. As opposed to draining our resources until eventually we hit a wall and we can't keep doing what we've been doing. And typically when that happens, people pack up and move on. Right. Um, and that And that has its own series of problems associated with it. So uh, that's how we manage our water. We measure how much of our flood we get into the ground. Um, and then that we use less than that in our drip irrigation system. So we put water in by catching floods. We take water out from a well in the same watershed. Uh, but it's less. It's less than what we catch off of the rain. 
Right. And you're basically using just simple check dams and swales and, like you were saying, terraforming, just shaping the earth. So when you get those, I imagine when you get two inches of rain a year that that happens in, you know, one or two cloud bursts, basically, and you get somewhat of a flash flood just going through there. And then you're just intercepting that water on its way down and soaking it into the ground in your tree planting areas. That's absolutely right. So we've got a number of types of earthworks. We have one rock dams. We have uh, small stone buns, B-U-N-D-S. We have terraces. We have berms. We have swales, and we have check dams. And we and they run all the way up to the top of our mountains, hmm. such that as soon as water falls, it's being slowed down, no matter where it's hitting. Yeah, and eventually because. Because uh, watersheds all follow a dendritic pattern, it comes to a point where you can start diverting it and controlling it, and you know you're not going to miss any. Right. So you basically made a one-time investment uh, with fossil fuels to shape the land, and now you have an indefinite uh, return where every time it rains, you're soaking water and um, restoring your aquifer. Yeah, I'd agree trees. with that. Uh, it does need maintenance. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, that's exactly it. Is that you you shape the land to manage the water and get it into the ground, and then that allows you to do something with it in a sustainable way. Yeah. Now, was when I mean, was the ground at one point? Did it have more capacity to store water? I mean, what's the kind of history where this <laughs> land shifted to being? Um, so degraded, whereas you're talking about these conditions with the silting and becoming impermeable and the water rushing down to the Red Sea. What what did it used to look like? So um, this place has been managed in a pastoral system for thousands of years, as has the majority of the Arabian Peninsula. But there was a traditional management system that maintained the fertility of the land, and that system was called Hema. H-I-M-M-A, or H-E-M-M-A, depending. And in the 1950s, the old tribal boundaries were abolished by the Saudi state um, as a way to centralize land control and and get their borders set um, and to try to move away from a a tribal country towards a nation state. And when those borders collapsed, you had a, a tragedy of the commons that ensued. The, the way it worked out was that people interpreted those changes to mean that anybody could graze anything at any time. Hmm. And so when it rains in al and our wadis turn green, our valleys and our mountains turn quite green, uh, we get lots of flowers and honeybees and all sorts of stuff. But we get people from you know, within a 200-mile radius that bring lots and lots of animals with them. And they come and they graze everything that grew. And within two months, it's it's gone, hmm. right? And then the people who live there are left with nothing hmm. uh, to graze their animals with. And so they've got to find an income to feed their animals for the other 10 months of the year. So what they've been doing is chopping down trees and selling the wood in Mecca uh, as charcoal. Hmm. So you have 
Overgrazing as a function of those tribal boundaries being gone and no land management system replacing the old one. Hmm. And then on top of that, you've got tree cutting by the people who live there who are trying to cope with uh, very short-term needs. And and that's been that's been going on since the 1950s, and they they've hit a massive. I mean, it's it's been an ecological disaster, hmm. all up and down the west coast of Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I've seen some of your your great images about what it would look like if you took some of the same. <laughs> patterning and concepts that you put into place on that hundred acres there and you scale that up. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your larger vision is? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, the geography of where we are is a microcosm of the rest of the, the region called the Hijaz, which stretches from Yemen up to Jordan and is that West, it's that West coast, of the Arabian Peninsula. And so we have uh, the Red Sea, and then we have this floodplain, and then we have these mountains uh, all running north to south. And so we it's a really interesting situation where we have the hydrological effect from the sea. We, we've got this maritime effect that happens. And then we've got a very, very short floodplain, and then you hit the mountains where you get an orographic effect. Do you okay, want to just define and, that? Because I'm not sure everybody. <clears throat> yeah, so the the maritime effect is that you have uh, – it's more temperate than it would be otherwise. You've got a lot of humidity, a lot of evaporation. Um, and, and then the orographic effect is this effect you get with mountains where you have a wet side of the mountain and you have a dry side of the mountain. Because when when humid air hits the mountains, it gets it gets pushed up high into the atmosphere where it cools, forms clouds, and then it rains on the wet side of the mountains. And that's called the orographic effect. Yeah. I live on the wet side of the Cascades here in Oregon. And you can see very starkly when you cross over these mountain ranges into the east side of the Cascades, suddenly you're in the high desert. And uh, exactly, most people so. listening probably have some sort of place that they can equate that in their minds. Yeah, and so you get you get a rain shadow on the on the wet, on the dry side of the mountain because those mountains are causing all the rain to fall on the wet side. That's a function of the mountains. If the mountains weren't there, you wouldn't have that. So we and what that does for us because we're in between the maritime effect and the orographic effect, we're essentially in a closed loop watershed. Uh, which means that the water that evaporates from the Red Sea is the same as the water that rains on the mountains and floods back into the Red Sea. Hmm. Okay, that water doesn't come from a different system. It's not coming from far away. It's not. It's 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 a closed loop. Mm-hmm. And because it is a closed loop, all whatever sort of. Uh, <clears throat> However we mess with the hydrology of that place is only going to affect that place. It's not going to have effects further downwind um, because it hits the wall of the mountains and then comes back down the mountains back into the sea. 
<clears throat> so understanding that, and if we understand how ground cover and forests and plants affect the hydrology of their own place, um, you get some really interesting possibilities. In a desert, um, there are three reasons why it doesn't rain in the desert. The first is that it's too hot. And so stuff doesn't go below the dew point, so you don't get condensation, uh, either on the ground or in the atmosphere. The second is that you may not have any water in your air, and so it's just too dry. Um, and the third reason may be that the, the cloud condensation nuclei in your atmosphere uh, is the wrong type. So let me, let me walk you through this a bit. The, uh, it's known that dust from the Gobi Desert is a big factor in rainfall in the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. Um, because that dust gets swept up way high into the atmosphere and it gets carried over. And when it hits the Pacific Northwest, that dust forms the, the particles that the water in the air condenses on so that you get cloud formation. Hmm. Okay, the way clouds form is you need water in the air and you need tiny particles uh, for that water to condense on. If you don't have those particles, the water can still be liquid even at temperatures like minus 30 Celsius. Hmm. But if you have particles in the air, and these can be volatile organic compounds, they can be aerosols, they can be dust, um, they can be... Uh, elements of pollution but they all interact with that water in the air at different temperatures and in different ways so that dust that comes from the gobi that is a major source of of particle of uh, ccn in the pacific northwest is an inhibitor of rainfall in the desert dust is a desert rainfall inhibitor hmm. because when it's up in the atmosphere as dust the sun will reflect off of that dust and it actually heats the part of the atmosphere where rain clouds would otherwise form. Hmm. Okay, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is dust needs water to be quite cold in order... Dust has a higher dew point is the easiest way to say it. Hmm. Water won't condense on dust at warmer temperatures. Now contrast that with... Uh, there's a place in Kenya, and this is I think this is in Bill Mollison's book, but there's a place in Kenya, it's a tea plantation area, that gets more hail than any other location on the planet. Hmm. And the people who were growing the tea, like the hail was damaging their crops uh, and impacting their bottom line. So they had a study done, and they found that the dander off of the tea trees, all the particulates and the aerosols coming off of the tea trees, actually could, water could condense on those particles at minus 5 Celsius. Minus, or between minus 5 and minus 7. Right. Um, and so, it, which is actually very warm for that to happen. And so they found that it was actually the tea trees that caused the hail. Huh. Wow. All right. And whereas 
with tea trees, they, they got ice forming at minus 5 to minus 7. They found with a, a typical forest from the same region, it was minus 9 to minus 11. Okay. Okay, so it would actually have to be 5, 6 degrees colder up in the atmosphere for hail to form off of a normal forest. But huh. with tea trees, it could be much warmer, and they would mm -hmm. get that hail forming. Huh. Wow, it's so interesting. And so the <clears throat> where we are in Saudi Arabia, you've got massive amounts of dust because we have all this bare ground, right? There's no tree cover. There's no plant cover. And so <clears throat> that inhibits rainfall for us. Hmm. Um, and so we have a lot of water in our air. It's very humid because we have that Red Sea. But we don't have the right kind of cloud condensation nuclei. Uh -huh. And it's too hot. Right. And we get massive amounts of dust. Right. So what we've found off of our little site is that the rain coming off of the floods that occur is enough to reforest the area. But if you were to reforest the area, then you'd have a massive reduction in the amount of dust you've got in your atmosphere. Right. Right? So you don't have that inhibitor anymore. Mm -hmm. Plus, you have all of the evaporation coming off of your trees, right? Because trees are trees are evapotranspirating yeah. uh, constantly, except ex unless they go dormant in the summer. But that's mm -hmm. fine. If you have your trees with their evaporation, and you have the sea with its evaporation at the same time, yeah, you've increased the the density of water in your air, right? And then along with that, you have all of the CCN coming off of your forest. You have your terpenes and your monoprenes and your VOCs and all your other aerosols that are cloud condensate nuclei. And now do you just want to say, how, is that just particles of the plants themselves that are volatilizing into the atmosphere or is that? Yes. Okay. It's, it's that plus it's tiny bits of leaf and bark matter. And, and but the the aerosols come off as part of the the respiration of the tree. Okay. All right. So if you reforest that area, you have less dust, you have more water in the air, and you have CCN that can cause condensation at warmer temperatures. Right. All right. You put that together, and and ceteris paribus. The conditions that allow rain to fall will happen more frequently. Right. In other words, it's going to rain more. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so you get this very, very positive feedback loop because we're in a closed watershed, mm -hmm. a closed loop watershed. It's this positive feedback loop where you get more rain so you can have more plant cover. So you get more of that same effect and, until eventually you've got, you've got a completely different climate. Right. A completely and it's essentially you take a million how many microclimates does it take to create a new climate? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know and and I've double checked this with a very prestigious meteorologist named Professor Milan Milan who's out of Spain. And he worked with the UN in predicting rainfall patterns based on how what agriculture's people were doing. And he said, how much you increase the rainfall depends on how much of your air gets displaced 
from the increased evaporation. He was like, that's the thing that you would have to measure to be able to predict how much rain will increase. But rainfall will increase. Hmm. Wow. So, so it's, I mean, <clears throat> you, you sat there and you made this initial investment of a non-renewable resource in a sense to shape the earth to collect the water, but you're creating this regenerative cycle where yep. you're soaking the water in, you're growing vegetation and actually creates more rain, which soaks more in and the vegetation yep. gets bigger and you're actually transitioned from the desertified ecosystem you're in to one uh, with that has greater precipitation, greater yeah, moisture it, in the soil. I mean, it, it won't be a desert anymore. Wow. Uh, what it will be, I don't know, because for this to happen, you'd have to have really intense management of land. Like the, the human system side of it is super complicated. Because mm. anytime you talk about land access and water access and management, you're talking about politics. Yeah. But ecologically, this is a real feasibility. Hmm. Um. And it has so much to say with respect to water security for for Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, Saudi Arabia, 70% of Saudi Arabia's drinking water comes from desalination. Wow. Right? So it's, it's, a, it's a security issue. It's, a, it's an economics issue. It's a rural development and poverty issue. It's a food and water security issue. Um, and this one system has the potential to deal with all of those, maybe not to solve all of them, but to create a new way where, I mean, I mean, this is an agriculture that increases water resources. Yeah. That doesn't exist anywhere else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> agriculture is 80% of the planet's water consumption. And we're creating an agriculture that increases water resources. Wow. In the most in the most harsh climate on the planet, just about. Well, yeah, it's it's rough. I'm not gonna right. deny it. Yeah. But I think I think that it's because it is so harsh um, that the opportunity is so big. Right. Now have you presented this idea to people in the government in Saudi Arabia or, or people that would have some kind of leverage and taking more land and getting it into uh, the type of system that you built? Yeah, we're work. We are transitioning into a public private partnership and we are the, the province of Mecca is granting us a 5,000 acre site to further develop. Um, because uh, we we have to prove the economics of it. We've yeah. proven the the ecological side of it. I feel like um, that it's an ecological feasibility. Once we prove the economic viability of it and show, hey, we can actually pay back whatever debt we would need to make these changes and, and make money and create jobs. We are working with uh, some folks in the in the Mecca province. We haven't gone national with this because. Because uh, we got to prove the financial side of it before anyone's really willing to take a look. Yeah, and what does that in involve? Proving the financial side of it. Um, we got to prove we can make money with it. Yeah, and I mean, what are right? how, how are you how are you doing that? How are so you, how do you have, see doing that? The 
we've got three main crops and then some side crops that we can produce off of this system. The best one is from a, a local Moringa species called Moringa peregrina. It does not produce leaves the way Moringa olifera does, which is the one most people know, but it produces the pods that, that uh, you can press them for oil, and it's a very expensive oil. Um, so that's for oil production. Then we have mesquite trees where we can grind the pods and make a gluten-free flour that's um, on the right side of the glycemic index and really healthy for people with diabetes. And diabetes is a big problem in Saudi Arabia. Then we have um, uh, Zizifus trees. Uh, that's jujube in English where we are producing a fruit. Uh, we're producing leaf powder and we're producing honey. The leaf powder and the fruit are both staples in Chinese medicine. Mm. So if we can't sell them locally, we will try to sell them in China because mm -hmm. uh, it's in high demand there. Mm. And then the honey off of the, off of the Zizifus is, is also uh, very high-quality stuff and, and very much in high demand mm -hmm. in the Arab world. Hmm. Specifically, the, specifically Zizifus honey or just honey in general? Spe specifically Zizifus honey. Huh? Is there some now sort we, of is there some sort of story around that or Yeah, it's it's considered medicinal. Okay. Uh, and it's it's one of the one of the few food crops mentioned in the Quran. Okay. So there's a lot of cultural panache, a lot of cultural weight to Zizifus honey. Hmm. But um but it's used medicinally. It's not it's not an eating honey, it's it's a medicinal honey. Okay. Um, we may be able, we may be able to produce moringa honey as well, which I think would have a a very strong niche market in the United States. <coughs> but then, aside from the tree crops, there's the grazing side to it. Like it is a silvopasture system, so uh, there's a lot of potential to do dairy, to do meats, uh, potentially leather. Hmm. off of these grazing systems and eventually we get to the point where we're not buying imported feed to graze our animals so they become a very low input thing that we can sell in the local markets uh, very easily especially during hajj i mean they're expecting 7.5 million pilgrims to come to hajj in the next three years wow and all those people have to eat. Um, and so if we can provide dairy, if we can provide mutton, if we can provide uh, lamb, that, that's, that's a half-hour drive from us. Wow. Right? That's the local market to tap into. It just yeah. makes too much sense to not do anything else. Yeah. And so there, there's the if we can get to the point where we're grazing these animals without having to buy imported feed, then you've got very low expenses. Um, they reproduce on their own. So you don't have, it, it just runs itself. Yeah. It, it's just the management aspect and the human aspect of it. Yeah. What are the big, biggest challenges with the human aspect that you've come up with so far since in your six years? The, um, well, the, the hardest thing was getting people's trust. Uh, and that took me, the, that was the first two years, really, of me being there and 
because I I was uh, I was a I was a foreign radical, right? I was a I was an other uh, being introduced into what was by and large a homogenous system. And so, <clears throat> I mean, I was the first American these Bedou had ever met. I was the first non-Muslim they had ever met. And that allowed me a lot of leverage in some ways, but I also had to show that I wasn't a threat to them. Mm. And so that, that took me two years. The other really difficult human aspect to this is just all the politics surrounding land ownership and land use. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, very thorny because the land that people live on is government land. They don't, they don't legally own the land they're on. Mm -hmm. But they are on it, and they are grazing it, and they are building houses there. And so we're trying to come up with something that satisfies the legal demands, but that also doesn't just completely disrupt uh, how the people are living. <coughs> and that is, that is underway. That is still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Do you see a pathway for, I mean, you have this 5,000 acres and you actually sent me a, you sent me an outline of the, it's, it's basically a, an, a whole watershed enclosed. Yeah. And, um, now would you be using the same methodology that you did in your first hundred acres on these 5,000 acres primarily? More or less. The difference being, we don't have a floodplain on that system. Yeah. Uh, we just have a flood. Mm -hmm. And so it will need um, a lot more specific engineering, um, but more or less we can we can afforest the valley bottom um, and get some trees up in the upper parts of those mountains as well. But then you're looking at uh, how frequently do you graze the bottoms as opposed to rotating the animals around the top, and you're also looking at how do we uh, create a system that incentivizes people to do the work they need to do to manage this uh, and at the same time allows them to take ownership in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, more or less, it's the our design is based on a fractal. And so the size doesn't matter as much because fractals are the same no matter how big or small they are. Right. Yeah, so you're basically, you have a pattern response to this fractal pattern of the branches of watercourses in the Absolutely. shape of a tree. So, Absolutely. So fantasize for a minute here that this goes really well and you prove your economic model here. You scale it up to this 5,000 acres. Um, yeah. What, where does it go from there? Um, from there, you, it moves on to the 30 million acres of the west coast of Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. um, and potentially other areas of the same region, potentially into Yemen, uh, potentially as a Gulf wide sort of cooperation where, cause, cause you do get a similar effect going the other way where, where on our water is coming from the west and hits the west side of the mountains. Um, but the other side of it, where you've got the empty quarter, you've got the Tehama Plain, and then you've got the the uh, Persian Gulf or the Arabic Gulf, 
<laughs> there's potential for doing similar sorts of things where you could convert the whole the whole Arabian Peninsula into a productive landscape. Wow. Um, and we would like to be the catalyst for that to happen. Hmm. Um, the west coast of the region first and then potentially uh, the whole rest of the peninsula. But, yeah, that's like a 50-year process, right? Yeah. I'm... <laughs> I, I'd, I'd like us to be the catalyst for that. I really would. Yeah. Yeah, we were, you know, I, my last podcast, I was talking to Ramis Kent, and he was talking about the proportion of the arable land of the world that is now considered desertified, that has, is neither productive nor functional. And it seems like the Arabian Peninsula is a pretty good chunk to go from relatively dysfunctional and devegetated to vegetated, regenerating the hydrological cycle, creating mm -hmm. more rainfall. Um, and it also seems like this is just one of the most arid regions on the planet. It seems like some of these marginal places can really start to turn the tides. When, when people <clears throat> make the decision that we need to restore the ecological functions of the landscape to mm -hmm. save the planet, basically. Um, when people make that choice, it seems like some of the solutions that you're coming up with right now in your project are, I mean, this is the nuts and bolts of how we can actually turn large-scale ecosystem functions back on. Yeah, I think... The the difference is I don't think the land I'm on was ever really considered arable. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's been nomadic pastoralism for at least 3,000 years. Uh, and and that's, that's both uh, gratifying and a little disappointing uh, in terms of creating precedent, as you said. Mm -hmm. I mean, on one hand, we are taking land that never really was arable, and we're producing soil and increasing water and producing crops. On the other hand, the, in, it, the ge it's the geography of the place that allows for this to happen. It's because we've got that, we're on the wet side of the mountains and we have the sea right next to us, that this is a possibility. Um, in a lot of other places, you're not going to have that same effect. Um where you won't be in a closed-loop system, you'll be in what's called a hydrological corridor where your rainfall, your precipitation, is largely dependent on what's happening uh, upstream of you. Yeah. And so uh, this, this was cited in... There was a big drought in Rio de Janeiro in 2015, I think, and it was widely understood that this drought was caused by deforestation upstream of Rio. Hmm. Um, because once that forest was gone, the mechanism for bringing rainfall into Rio was hampered. Hmm. And so we, yeah, I, I do think that we, we are setting a decent model the other thing you've got is there's a massive conflict between this concept of farmland and ec and ecology, right? We, we, we don't seem to worry that the farmland we have 
could be ecologically functioning. We just accept that there's farmland and then there's wilderness, right? And wilderness is where nature happens and farmland is where we grow our, where we grow our food. <coughs> but there needs to be in, in places where we're producing our, our staple crops, there needs to be an amalgamation somehow where we are both farming and there is a functioning ecology. Yeah. Um, and that's very, that's very hard to do given the economic incentives at hand and the, and the financial barriers to entry of pulling that off. Right. But um, you look at these aquifers where it's like a one-time use kind of thing. I do think we should be using those resources as a hydrological investment, right? If we mm -hmm. could convert Kansas, which is mostly wheat production right now, mm -hmm. growing off of the Ogallala, and the Ogallala is not fossil water. It's just that we're taking so much more out than goes back, back in that yeah. the water levels are dropping. But if we can make hydrological investments with fossil water such that that water ends up being circulated into the local hydrology, mm -hmm. then you could change the climate of those local places, right? Yeah. If you were to reforest Kansas using the Ogallala, in such a way that you were going to increase the rainfall there, then, then it's worth it. Yeah. If you just use it up to grow wheat and corn, and then all of a sudden it's gone and you can't grow wheat and corn anymore and you're facing desertification, then you've lost a massive opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how when the Great Plains were settled, the, the, some, there's some quote from the politicians of the day saying that rainfall would follow the plow. And that yes. as humans settled land, that rainfall would actually increase. And that was the belief when people settled places like North Dakota that ended up you know, being really arid and not being able to handle the kind of population density it started out with, um, when, with colonization, uh, you know, yep. European colonization. Um, and it's actually just the opposite, that the plow yep. came and destroyed the perennial vegetation and actually <laughs> depleted the rainfall instead of yep. raising it. So it's kind of ironic. It is. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, that's what I'm thinking about these days, are using, using aquifers as hydrological investments and switching on our hydrological cycles. Yeah. Now, is, is there private property in uh, Saudi Arabia, or is, is, the whole, is all the land owned by the government? There is private property, um, but it... But most of the land is owned by the government. Okay. Yeah, it seems like um, it's 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 interesting how countries that have more centralized state ownership of resources have the capacity to do more widespread land repatterning from a top-down approach. However, countries that have more that private property like the United States is you'd have to incentivize the landowner to want to do the activities on their property. And you might look at some of the government programs like CREP, you know, where they restore wetlands and riparian ecosystems on farmland here in the U S um, yep. as, as an example of bottom up incentivization. Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, it's just a question of resource allocation and and who's making the right decision. Yeah. And who has the power to make that decision happen? Yeah. Well, is there, you know, thanks so much for, for painting that picture. That's really, I, I was just so interested to, to really hear um, some more about the things I've been hearing you talk about with the whole uh, effects of reforestation on hydrology and climate. And so thank you so much for shedding some light on that. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, anything you're up to these days that you want to point people towards um, if they want to know more about? <clears throat> Yeah, I run a webinar series called Sustainable Design Masterclass. Uh, my partner in that is Raleigh Latham, who's out of uh, California. And we do weekly, typically we do weekly webinars and all about sustainable agriculture um, from the perspective of a farmer, from a big picture perspective. We talk about entrepreneurship a lot. Um, and so if if you're interested in homesteading or in buying a farm or if you're a farmer and you're interested in converting to a, a sustainable agricultural system that's what we talk about all the time nice nice what uh what's your favorite book these days neil oh man uh i have not read a book for fun in a long time uh -huh. i think the last one i read for fun was uh, Brandon Sanderson's uh, Stormlight Chronicles. Uh, huh. It's fantasy fiction. Huh. It's fun stuff. Nice. Uh, that's a lot, and th I think that must have been like six months ago I read that. Uh -huh. um, otherwise, I'm actually working on a book. I'm 70 pages into a manuscript nice. uh, about my experiences in Saudi Arabia. Working, the working title of the book is Terraform. Nice. And, uh, yeah, I'm about halfway through my manuscript and on the verge of approaching publishers. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, let me know when you have, uh, when we can pre-order because that sounds super interesting. I'd love to just know more and more about everything that you've done there over the last six years and, and beyond. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Great. I'd be happy to. Yeah, well, is there, I, I'll put, I can put any, you can send me any web links and I'll put them in the show notes so you don't have to go and recite them or anything. But, um, hey, I want to thank you so much, Neil. That was really incredibly interesting for me and hopefully for anybody else that's <coughs> listening to this and really inspiring. You know, we're talking about earth repair radio. How can we actually turn the biological tides on the planet and restore ecosystems, restore food production, um, restore cultures and give people uh, a good, healthy, and um, regenerative and fulfilling way to live on the planet. So thank you so much, Neil. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Andrew. I love it. All right. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.